Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi there. Happy holidays. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, December 5th, 2019, at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, which probably means you avoided talking about politics. But I found that there are certain topics in politics upon which nearly everyone agrees. Just about everybody knows they got screwed by the banks. Their communities got screwed by the banks. The government got screwed by the banks, which means the taxpayers got screwed again because their taxpayer dollars went to bail out non-existent losses, while everyone else, investors, borrowers, and local governments alike, were left to eat dirt, sometimes literally. So taxpayers got screwed once as consumers, once as borrowers, and then again as taxpayers, while bank executives laughed their way into offshore accounts. We all know that we all know that's true, even if we don't fully understand it. Some understand it better than others, but getting a complete understanding has been a major undertaking. I've been doing it since 2006, which means that in a month or so it'll be uh, 14 years. And all this is still happening. While we may differ on what to do about it, we're virtually all in agreement that the banks should be stopped or that the bank practices as they currently exist should be stopped. For me, that begins in the courtroom. But soon, I will be starting an initiative to change laws and make them more specific to prevent a replay and continuation of what I have called, for good reason, the greatest economic crime in human history. Sneak preview on the show next week. Recent information that I received today from Bill Padalo, after years of his digging and toiling, proves that Chase Bank proves, not suggests, that Chase Bank and the people who work at Chase have been lying for more than a decade about what happened when they acquired the brick-and-mortar business of Washington Mutual Bank. This proof leads inexorably to the sole conclusion that all documents, all the documents were faked and forged and all represent representations made by or on behalf of Chase Bank 
were false, and they all knew it. This leads to all kinds of speculation as to what might happen as a result of this evidence. They said that they acquired loans from the FDIC receivership or from the U.S. trustee and bank controlling the bankruptcy estate of Washington Mutual. Neither WAMU nor Chase owned the loans at the time of the deal on September 25th. 2008, they were never intended to, and they didn't, but Chase claimed it anyway. Their entire claim was a lie, and yet their lies prevailed in court as Chase reaped billions of dollars from foreclosures on debts they never owned and never paid for. It sounds ridiculous, but that's what happened. Remember, you can always come back and listen to the show again or send it to a friend uh, by going to blogtalkradio.com and looking up the Neil Garfield Show. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And it's brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. We ask that you consider hitting the donate button on the blog uh, and contribute or pledge whatever you think you can afford. A typical seasoned judge in a community with dense demographics might have been the primary judge or at least a participating or covering judge in about 10,000 foreclosure cases before they hear anything about your case. In each case, the judge renders multiple rulings, opinions, and a judgment. On average, it's probably about five rulings or orders per case. And that's because nearly all cases are not contested by homeowners. Um, so that means if you take the five rulings per case and 10,000 cases, that's around 50,000 orders that have been signed by that one judge. The prospect of any judge saying that he or she was wrong 50,000 times is at best delusional. The odds of any judge entering the courtroom without prior opinions and biases is zero, period. They're human beings, and if you want something else, go to a planet where robots do everything, including all the thinking. But don't forget, those robots are going to be programmed by people who have an agenda. So how do I win, and how do other attorneys win in foreclosure cases? More importantly, if you're a homeowner who's facing foreclosure, or if you've been sub uh, subjected to foreclosure, how do you plead a claim or defense that ends up being considered credible to a judge who walks into the courtroom believing that he or she has already ruled on the matter 50,000 times before and that they weren't wrong. You start with hiring a trial lawyer. Tonight I'm discussing what, is, what I think is on the judge's mind and how to gain entry into his or her mindset such that you can persuade the judge to see things your way or at least enough to rule in your favor. 
people tend to want to go further than that and have the judge announce that Chase Bank or Deutsch or whatever is a criminal um, and that the people in the courtroom are criminals. That's never going to happen. Uh, not in a foreclosure case. And it's doubtful that it will ever happen anywhere because of the political uh, climate uh, that right now is still controlled by Wall Street money. So what is on the mind of a judge when hearing another case in foreclosure? I've been a judge just by special appointment at times. So I know a little bit about this. I listen, when I'm on the bench, I listen carefully when the case starts up because that's what forms the foundation, at least in my mind, and the context in my mind for the issues and what my rulings might be. When I get bored, I'm thinking about something else entirely just to pass the time while I give the parties time to have their say in court, even if nobody's listening. It's just a fact. And that's what most judges do. So the first lesson is what you say first may determine the entire course of the rest of the hearing. That's why all lawyers for foreclosure mills are required to say out loud and the first thing, besides may it please the court, the first thing is that this is a standard foreclosure. They seek to control the narrative, which means they want to control the labels that people are using to describe the case. It, not just the case, but the issues and even the parties. By referring to U.S. Bank as the trustee, they are putting a label that reinforces the notion that there's a trust involved in the case, but more importantly, that this is an institutional foreclosure by U.S. Bank when nothing could be further from the truth in most cases. It makes no difference to them that this is not a standard foreclosure. They say it because it will lull the judge into staying within his or her comfort zone, which is a judgment for the bank without any consideration as to whether the bank is actually involved and without any consideration as to whether this lawsuit is about recovery for an unpaid debt, which in most cases it isn't. The lawyer for the homeowner must be equally strong and credible in stealing the control of the narrative, or at least weakening the opposing lawyer's control of the narrative. This takes skill, and it takes experience. Both things that virtually all pro se litigants do not possess. Eventually, getting to your strong points or eventually raising an objection is the equivalent of not litigating at all. If you don't have a good presentation up front, by the time you get to your good points, nobody's listening. 
you will lose no matter how obvious you think it is that you should win. At trial, failure to raise timely objections means waiver of the objection. So if you fail to object at the time the question is asked and you fail to move to strike the testimony and exhibit if your objection is sustained, you have just lost that battle and maybe the whole war. So what is on my mind when I enter the courtroom as a judge? First and foremost is the power and respect that the judicial institution commands, and therefore every challenge to my power as a judge is a challenge to all courts. I will protect and defend that vigorously, both out of personal ego and pride in my position. That means if you violate an order I have signed, I'm going to make you pay for it. And that means you have both a weapon and a vulnerability as a homeowner in a foreclosure action. Lawyers for the foreclosure mill can make mincemeat out of you if you fail to obey a court order. So they will try to pursue a strategy where the court issues an order that the homeowner is required to obey. If you delay or or you're confused, the court's going to take a bite out of you for failing to obey the court's order. Now, this may sound like a bunch of gobbledygook to you, but the fact is this is what runs the court. Because it also means that you can do the same thing. If you violate a discovery order, the judge is going to issue some sort of sanction and might be striking your pleadings. If they violate a court order, the same thing can occur. You're going to have to fight harder for it than they will, though. So if you know or firmly believe that the parties lined up against you um, don't know the answer to a key question in discovery or will refuse to answer, then you can do the same thing to them. For simplicity, say you ask for a list of all transactions in which value was paid for the subject debt. They don't answer. Trust me, they won't answer. You file a motion to compel and you remember to get a hearing date and you go to the hearing and hopefully the judge orders them to answer the question. In most cases, the judge will order them to answer the question. After all, foreclosure is supposed to be about recovery on a debt. What question could be more than important than who paid for it? They still don't answer, and trust me, they still won't answer. Now, even if your defense was weak or was perceived as weak, you now have an opportunity to win. You file a motion for sanctions, and again, you remember to get a hearing date from the judge or the scheduling clerk. And again, the judge orders them to answer, and for good measure, also orders them to pay some 
fine or, or fees to you. And again, they refuse to answer. And this time you file a renewed motion for sanctions and a motion in limine. For sanctions, you ask that the pleadings be struck and that under all circumstances they not be permitted to take advantage of any evidence or presumption that they own the debt or that they represent anyone who does own the debt because they refuse to answer dis discovery, but more importantly, because they establish a pattern of contempt, contempt of court by defying the court's orders. So you see, it's not you versus the bank anymore. It's the lawyers against the judge. And the judge always wins. The same type of strategy can be employed in mediation. If you're going to mediation, you want to make sure that there's either a general order requiring that the parties appear and that the representative of a corporate entity appear with full authority to settle. That doesn't ever happen either. So you can do the same thing and start making the point with the judge that they're not supplying anybody because they're not actually the, the real party in interest. And I've had a couple of cases where the judge asked direct questions of the proposed witness, and the proposed witness said, yes, I will have authority if you order us back to mediation. And he didn't. So, again, what you want to do is line up so that it's the lawyer for the foreclosure mill against the judge rather than you against the bank. So the next thing on my mind as a judge is that I don't want to issue rulings or orders that are likely to be reversed. Because the more my decisions are reversed, the less I will be respected. There it is again. Personal ego. Personal ambition. No trial judge gets to the appellate bench if they are constantly subject to reversals by appellate courts. And that's where precedent matters. What have the appellate courts in your jurisdiction said about the issues in your case? What has the Supreme Court in your jurisdiction said about the issues in your case? As the judge, I would feel bound to follow previous cases that have been decided at the appellate level that are in my district. I might be persuaded if there are no decisions in my district by decisions in other jurisdictions, but I'm bound to follow the, the superior courts, the appellate courts and the Supreme Court uh, in, my, in my jurisdiction if I'm the trial judge. And the final and related point I want to make here is that judges, like all lawyers, I'm going to get in trouble for this, I know that, 
are mostly lazy and not interested in getting into complexity if they think they can decide a case or a situation on simpler grounds. That's actually a doctrine. Like in constitutional law, if the court can resolve the issue without making a decision based on the Constitution, it will not make the constitutional decision. There are many exceptions to this, but it is true for a majority of lawyers and a majority of judges, which is why the more you find out about the particular judge who's hearing your matter, the better. Sometimes that can be very difficult, especially when you've got a rotating bench. But while you're at it, it's good to find out how the bench in your jurisdiction generally rules upon issues that you want to raise. Don't ever think that these judges don't get together and decide collectively on what's the right law to apply. They do. And they do it all the time. There's nothing wrong with doing it. There's nothing illegal about doing it. And while we would hope that each judge thinks for themselves, at the same time, there are many constraints requiring a judge to issue rulings with which they themselves may not agree. A good trial lawyer doesn't actually care whether his or her client is subjectively wrong or right. In fact, a good trial lawyer doesn't care if their client is objectively right. A good trial lawyer is not concerned with right and wrong. That's for the trier of fact. A good trial lawyer simply wants to win and is willing to do anything legal to get to that win, including, and, and many times this is necessary in foreclosure defense, including risking the judge's wrath when the lawyer is pushing the judge towards a conclusion that the judge does not want to reach. This has happened many, many times to me in the course of 40, how many years is it? For it be 44 years this May, I think. Maybe it's 43. Anyway, the um, we I've gotten into an altercation with the judge in open court. And sometimes the veins in the judge's neck will pop. Unless you're willing to take it to that extent under circumstances where you're damn sure you're right, then you're not pushing the judge in the direction that you want the judge to go. So in foreclosures, it pretty much is always the case that if you win, it was because you pushed your judge into thinking that this case is different. Because in this case, the foreclosure mill lawyer failed to prove his case. That means that the foreclosure mill did not make its prima facie case. 
Now, in non-judicial states, this gets a little tricky, requiring even more knowledge of trial law and procedure in order to force the burden onto the lawyer for the foreclosure mill, because in non-judicial case, cases, it's the homeowner who has to file to stop the foreclosure, whereas in judicial states, it's some party demanding the foreclosure occur. And so instead of being in a defensive position, the homeowner is put in an oddly offensive position, which is puts them in a position of denying allegations that have not even been made. Interesting decision just recently out of Maryland where a judge openly said, I'm taking issue with all other decisions. And in the context of Fannie and Freddie and so forth, he said that they are government entities and that the taking of property by non-judicial foreclosure by government entities violated due process under the Fifth Amendment, even if it was legal in the state in which the property was located. Very interesting decision. I don't know where that's going to go. And a good trial lawyer knows when to fold and when to show restraint. Our clients want us to shout that the banks are guilty of genocide when it is far more credible to say they have failed to fulfill the legal requirements and may have done so intentionally entitling the homeowner to damages, but at least entitling the homeowner to judgment to prevent the foreclosure. We don't need to show that the bad guy is a, has leprosy or Ebola. It's enough to show that they're sick enough that the judge doesn't want to get near them for fear of being infected. That's not an exact analogy, but it's close enough for people to understand that trying to prove all kinds of bad things about your opposition is not necessarily in your interest. What you want to do is present a very credible presentation uh, or attack on the um, uh, on the foundation of the case that's being presented against you. And there are specific requirements in order to be able to foreclose. Many times, especially when there is no contest by the homeowner, those re requirements are presumed to be to have been fulfilled. But my experience is, and watching other lawyers, it's my opinion, that in better than 65% of the cases where the attorney is allowed to be as aggressive and persistent as, as he or she wants to be, and going to the very end, the result is satisfactory to the homeowner. But it doesn't look that way until you get to the very 
tail end of the case. Their job and their instructions are to make it as difficult as possible for the homeowner to win. By their job, I mean the foreclosure mill. That's their job. The the uh, so-called investment banks, the Wall Street brokerage firms, they don't actually care if they lose the case or not. That's something that people are mistaken about. They don't care. What they want, what they don't want, is thousands of cases to go in that direction, and they know they can avoid it by making it expensive and very time-consuming. And that, my friends, is why going to court without a trial lawyer is generally suicide, even if you are a lawyer. Because to be a good trial lawyer, you need to care about winning more than anything else. If it helps the lawyer to win by agreement that the client is an idiot, the client will hate the lawyer and hate that event until the client wins. Then generally speaking, all is forgiven. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. Tell your friends about us. Till next week, then, this is Neil Garfield signing off. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.